0: Hallelujah. Blessed be his name. Amen. All right, family. We're going to now real quickly um, discuss these two parashas together. There is so much information in both Matot and Maseh that we can literally probably spend two to three weeks just talking about these two portions together. because There's a lot of details in here. But what the Father has given me this week is It's not so much to focus on the details, although we will cover the details in the years to come. But the message for today, above all, is to understand the direction that the mighty one of Israel is taking his people. Amen? Let me ask you all a question here real quickly. I I need this. I'm above 40. I need one of these now. Let me ask you all a question. How many of you want deliverance? A good portion of you. That's good. We're in a good track. In this parashah combined together, we're going to understand that in order to have restoration, we have to have deliverance first. Deliverance has to begin. It's the first step to any restoration of family, relationships. In whatever case may be. Now we ended last week's Shah, If you guys c- remember correctly. In the Torah. It was the restoration. Of God's worship. You guys remember. I have a question for all of you here today. Why did Hashem. Relate to the people of Israel. About the Holy Feast. They were given in Leviticus chapter 23 why is he reiterating all the way here in Numbers, at the end of Numbers and Parashat Pinchas specifically, why is he reiterating Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, right? Sukkot. Why is he reiterating all these feasts again? Something happened, folks. You've got to see the theme here. We went from Committing the idolatry at Median to God restoring now, showing, okay, here's the restoration of my word. Here's the feast. Hello. And now we come into this parasha and we enter into the vows. And then from the vows, we go into kill Median. <laughs> it's comical to tell you the truth, but it's beautiful. we have seen something very prophetic in here. Let's start with, first of all, we're going to skip the vows today. We'll cover that hopefully next year. But understand that before the vows came in, it was the restoration of his holy feast. And now, Kilmedian. So let's see, where is it the Father is leading us in this? Oh, Hashem? So, Matot Maase. What I've done is I have taken both of the titles. Of this study for this morning, and I put them together as one title. (laughs) Mato Mase. So let's see. Mato Mase. One means tribes, the other means journey. Okay? Let me ask you all something. Do you feel you're part of the tribe? And you're supposed to say, yeah? Okay. Half of you, we're in very good shape this morning. So yes, so that means that you're part of the journey. We're going to see something very prophetic here. Because if you're part of the tribes, then you're part of the journey. Now there's a message for all of you who are claiming to be part of the tribes. There's a message for you concerning the journey. Hear the Torah. Because it wasn't written in vain. It was written for us today. It was written for future generations. So let's look at this word, Matot Maase. Gibatria gives us a combination of 640. It's a numerical value of the Hebrew language for all these letters combined together for the both titles. And guess what? When you put them both together, Matot Maase, we get the great Hebrew word, Behar Ticha. Becharticha says in Hebrew. So when we take matot and masse and put them together, because it's a double portion, isn't it? When we put them together, Hashem says becharticha. What is becharticha? It means you chose. In other words, God chose you for what? For the journey. Hear me. You have been chosen for the journey. Now, I want you to focus on that, because if you have been chosen for the journey, well, you have to accept what comes with the journey. Right? You can't say, well, I want the journey, but I want to create my own path. <laughs> it's one path in the journey, guys. So we find this word in here, Becharticha, in actually Isaiah 41.8. And look what Isaiah 41.8 says. But you, Israel, my servant, he says. So guess what? As being part of the journey, one of the qualifications, hear me out. One of the qualifications for you to be in the journey is that you need to be a servant. Starts with that. Now, we all in agreement, but I don't think we all fully understand what it means to be a servant from a Jewish context. You know, because there's a servant from the Western mentality, and then there's a service from the Jewish context. Problem is that Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi, so we have to go with that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? We have to understand the way he what he meant by it. It says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have what? Chosen. That's that word, Bechihatecha. I have chosen, he says, descendants of Abraham, my friend. And being a servant, that means that you are his friend, right? Wrong. Let me show you how this reads in Hebrew. And Hebrew says, "Ve'ata Israel avdi." It says, "My servant Yaakov Asher becharticha Zara." It says, "Abraham Ojavi." It says, "It, says, it says in literally, you Israel, my servant." Uh, that that word is avdi, my servant Yaakov. And why does he say my servant Yaakov? By the way, we need to understand this. There's a wordplay there. Because Jacob is known as a supplanter, the one who's always in the back. In this world, the rabbis teach folks, in this world we are Jacob. In the world to come, we will become Israel. Because what is Israel? One who reigns as a prince. One of the definitions. But in this world, we are Jacob. We're not always in the head most often we're the tail in this kingdom that's why he always uses a wordplay with jacob and israel even though they are the same person it's a different position see we're not israel yet today as a position as a position we're jacob we're the supplanter we're the ones that are trying to fight to get into the kingdom that should change your mindset by the way so look. So it says Avdi Yaakov Asher. Then it says Bechartiha What it means in here? What he's saying? Uh, I chose you, the seed Zera Abraham of Abraham. But it doesn't say friend. What is the Hebrew word for friend? Haver. But it doesn't say Haver in there. It says Ohavi. My love to be exact it's not my friend my love that's huge because he's saying if you are my servant you are my love that's more personal than just a friend you are truly my love how many of you want to be the father's love okay we have to learn how to be a of the his servant first and well how do we how do we become a servant well welcome to the journey Now we're getting into the parsha. This is the parsha ma matot ma se. Let's get into it now. Now we're going to find out what we're going to glean from the parsha matot. Because parsha Matod there's so many things, but the Father has led me to focus on one thing specifically and one in ma se. With this understanding that both of them means I chose or you chose. And it refers to Isaiah 48, talking about a servant. With that said, let's feed off of that now. Let's see where the Father is leading with this. So in Parashat Matot, we that one of the things we learn is this. Numbers chapter thirty-one, thirteen says, Moses and Elias are the priests, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army and the captains of thousands and the, and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. So let me just real quickly. Last week, they, they did the restoration of the word, right? Then the parashah starts with the vows. When you make a vow, right? Can I ask you something? Did you all make a vow to God? In more ways than others. Because when you partook of Passover, you made a vow. I don't know if you kind of quite understand that. Passover is a vow covenant meal. So you made a vow. Now, in this vow, comes the war of medium. Why did the Torah put the war of medium right there? Because, I mean, this happened way back with Pinchas. So why are we talking about it now? See, the father is going to elaborate the war with medium now. So what happens? They go to war with medium. Question is, why did they go to war with medium? Because of the idolatry that medium committed or rather seduce Israel into committing, right? So now this is where it's picking up, to give you an idea. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, he says. Let me put it in here so like I don't have to keep looking at the screen. And it'll be easier for me to do this. So he says... These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. I highlighted in there the counsel of Balaam because Moses was angry with the people or the captains because they spare the very thing that caused them to sin. See folks, when we're reading the Tanakh, you really have to have a broad, you have to have a prism in mind. Because it's not just tunnel vision, it's a prism. You have to see this from all angles. What he's saying in here is that you have gotten rid of all the enemies, but you have kept essentially the high places. I want to talk a little bit about that. They spared of the thing that caused them to commit sin. What is the Father teaching us? Folks, you're supposed to destroy all those things that have caused you to sin. If you're coming into this walk and you're holding on to the very things that cause you to sin, folks, you're setting yourself up for failure. How did Moses feel about this? Think about it. He wasn't very happy with it. So it says that these were the ones that Cause them the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam let's look at that word council Balaam why is it important because according to revelation Balaam is still around where is Balaam where is Balaam it's a good question I never heard of an organization that says welcome to the congregation of Balaam never, never heard it never seen it out there advertised never seen a big sign the church of Balaam welcome all so where is Balaam today well, before we can do that, let's see how it is read. In Hebrew, it says, Bit-Var-Bilam, it says. Bit-Var-Bilam. In other words, what is Bit-Var-Bilam? Well, we know Bilam, right? Balaam. But when it says the council, it is literally Bit-Var. So I'm going to share that word. What is the word Bit-Var? Well, it carries the root word of Davar, which means word, right? But when you add the bayit before the resh, it kind of changes it a little bit. Even though it's rooted in that, it changes the meaning. What is the meaning of itvar? It means in words of or in someone's opinions or according to. So when he says the counsel of Balaam, it's talking about the opinion of Balaam or rather according to the words of Balaam. So. How does that relate to us today? Well, let me share something with you first of all. I want to, before we get ahead of ourselves in here, we're going to see this through the context of, again, the Jewish roots. How is it that the sages of Israel understood this in ancient times, ancient, ancient, ancient Judaism? Let's see in here. In hiskuni Numbers 31, it says this. When it says the counsel Balaam it literally means to break faith with God through Balaam's counsel to break faith with God through the counsel or the opinion of somebody else are you getting this how do you break faith with God well we all have haven't we I'm going to share a little bit more on this. And how do you break faith? How do you adhere to the counsel of Balaam? Because you see, the problem is that it's still alive. Look, he says in here, he had taught these women how to lead the Israelite into grievous sin. In other words, the counsel of Balaam, it's something that you teach. You are literally learning from Balaam how to break faith with God. Does that make sense? Some of you are smiling. That's good. I'm not saying the word. You will. You put it in your mind. So let's see how this plays out. Because in Revelation chapter 2, 14, look what it says. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of who? Balaam. So if you are not a New Testament reader and and you're reading the New Testament only and you come across this passage, where will you find the teachings of Balaam? Where in the New Testament does it tell you the teachings of Balaam? Because here's the problem. Who's speaking in here? Yeshua. Your salvation. The Messiah. He is saying, I have an issue with you. Because you got those who are teaching the, 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 the teachings of Balaam. Okay. Let me scratch my head. Where do I find it? Oh, you see, you're forced to go back. You have to go back to this parasha. It's I as mean, so that the New Testament is taking you back to the Torah to understand it. So look what it says. Who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the son of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Oh, Hashem. So, how does the counsel of Balaam, and how is the counsel of Balaam being delivered today? The same way it was delivered back then, folks. Let's take a look. Let's see here. Bitvar Bilam. And that is the council, Balaam, right? Put together, Gematria, gives us 350, right? Now remember, it says in Revelation that he has an issue with those who are teaching the doctrine of Balaam, right? So we have to open our ears because if it's really, really something that is upsetting our Messiah... We really need to open our ears. Hazan in Hebrew. Open our ears to hear what he has to say. Look. Bitvar Bilam gives us a Gimachi value of 350. 350 gives us sofrey in Hebrew. What is the word sofre in Hebrew? It means scribes, books, or writer. It's from the Hebrew word Sefer. Sefer is a book. But Sephorim is the ones who actually write the book. So let's see this. How is the counsel of Balaam being delivered today? This is what I'm going to submit to you. Let's see here. Jeremiah 8, 8 and 9. Because the doctrine of Balaam combined together gives us the gematio value of a scribe. Look what the Torah says or the Tanakh. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? How many people say we are wise because God's law is with us? Oh, there's plenty of them, right? Look what it says. But behold, look what he says. The lying pen of the scribe has made it into a lie. That's the word soferim. In other words, God's word says this, but the commentary says the opposite. That's the doctrine of Balaam. Look, the wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Interesting enough. Now, what is the context in here in Jeremiah? Well, Christianity didn't exist back then. So it's not talking about Christians. Buddhism didn't exist at this point. So it's not talking about the Buddhists. Islam didn't exist at this time. So he's not talking about Islam. But there's one religion that existed at this time. And that was Judaism. And who is Jeremiah addressing? What is the context in the book of Jeremiah? He's addressing the Jews. He is saying the lying pen of the scribe. Is actually putting a lie in there. It's being twisted. It's being manipulated. But is Judaism the only one that's guilty of this family? Look. The lying pen. Christianity. With the commentaries and the laws of the churches, do you know that every church has an organization, a somewhat of a big dean of leaders that dictate to the members what is sin and what is not, according to their ru- according to their rules and governing? For some of you who've been in the churches for many many years, you know that I'm not lying. How about modern Judaism today? Yes. The commentaries the same way, the laws of the rabbis, it's no different. They put commentaries in there, and we talk about commentaries in there. They are contrary to what the word says. This is another form of the teaching of Balaam. How about Islam? How about the commentaries of Islam? Because Islam, what they did is they just took the Torah and twisted it. Actually, the whole Tanakh. So what do they do? They commentaries and the laws of Islamic center. Thus, you know, they credit the Bible for this. Even though it's the Koran, but they say it's still the God of creation. So what are we looking at in here, folks? The doctrine of Balaam is being delivered in different, different ways. And what is the idea? The idea is to get you to stumble from walking in the truth. You read me. So look. Luke 10, 25 through 26. Look what the Messiah said in here. It's beautiful. He says in Luke 25. And a lawyer stood up. And by the way that word for a lawyer. And there. Literally means a Torah scholar. These were like people who were extremely knowledgeable in the Torah. Okay. So a lawyer stood up and put into the test. Put who to the test? Your Messiah. Saying teacher. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And what was the answer of the Messiah? He said to him. What is written in the law and how does it read to you <laughs> notice what he said okay what does it say and how do you interpret it that's what he's saying to him how does it read what is written but how, what does it say to you essentially this is the problem that we have in folks see we read but then we take the reading and we interpret it to our own understanding Mark 7, 7 through 9, look what it says. But in vain they do worship me, teachings as doctrines that re- the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. I will submit to you today, folks, that Christianity is no different. Christianity, all of Christianity is tradition, by the way. All of it. All of it is oral law, by the way. All of it is oral law. There's not a one single thing in Christianity that's actually written law. All of it is oral tradition. It's the issue because according to their old tradition the sabbath is done away with sunday is the new day okay what does it say what does it mean to you last time i checked saturday saturday sunday sunday i don't see how we can interpret that Oh, misinterpret that but yet we do it we still do it so the tra- the doctrine of balaam is meant to get you off track completely He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Again, folks, he's addressing in here the Jews because Christianity didn't exist back then. But I guarantee you that if Christianity was existed at that point, boy, he would have completely had a whole different message in here than what we're reading today. So the doctrine of Balin, folks, what we're starting off with the parashah Matot, is that we need to get rid of all the traditions... All the bad traditions, let me rephrase that, bad traditions that come against the living word of God. Because remember that this happened after the incident with the Midianites. Remember? That's why I want you to keep the order. Midianites, renewal of vow, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the renewal of the covenant, which is the the feast, the vows, and then this right here, the war with medium. When we cross over, folks, to this faith, our job is to be able to burn, destroy completely all the doctrines that come against the Lord. The problem that we have having today is many people are not. You see, many people are still keeping the Midianites alive. We have a bad habit on doing that. Our country does that, folks. We have a bad habit on nurturing the enemy because, you know, Jesus says, love your enemy. Again, mis- misunderstanding of the word. So now, what we're doing is we, we, we just, you know, we just really, really nice and softly, we're petting the viper. And the viper is biting and it's hurting us because we're not willing to get rid of the viper. God is very specific in His Word. You get rid of your enemy, simply put. There's a reconciliation in here, folks, that we need to balance at the end of the day. You continue with the viper, it's going to kill you. I promise you. You continue with friends that are consistently driving you off the wagon or driving you off the way, you're going to end up just like them. Why do you think God was so, so adamant about the people not intermarrying in the Tanakh? Because what did he say? They will end up changing you, not the other way around. They will change you. You're not going to change them. They will change you. We have to be very, very careful when it comes to this. Look, Numbers 31, 13. Moving on here, it says, Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who has not known man intimately, but all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare up for yourself. So what is really taking place in here? Because he says, kill all these people. The God of Israel is asking to kill little children? Folks. You realize that a time is going to come in the future that you're going to have to do that. Are you willing? not saying that you're going to just go and kill people. I'm saying when that time comes that he's going to be here, he's going to give you the order. Are you going to be one of those that says, no, I'm not going to do that? It's food for thought, folks, because you see, we have learned through our traditions that God is lovey-dovey, but we never learned the judgment of God. That's the problem. We only know one aspect of him. And now we're making judgments according to that side of him. But we've never seen the other side. You do realize that as high as his mercy is, so is his judgment. Do you know that? That he has zero tolerance for idolatry? We have to wake up, folks. He says, kill every male among the little ones. So now when we see a scripture reference to make you understand where I'm going with this. I'm not teaching you guys to go out there and slaughter people, by the way. That's not what I'm saying. Because, by the way, you can't do that today anyways. There's no Sahedron standing. The king is not in Israel. So you can't possibly do that today anyways. So don't come out of here saying, Richard said to go ahead and kill little children that are not part of the Torah. It's not my message. I'm saying kill the idolatry in your life. Kill the people who are causing you to sin, meaning get rid of them. Let me show you how. Here's another example. Second Kings chapter 10.28. That's why I love the history of Israel. By the way, I submit to you guys, don't just read the Torah, read the history of Israel. Because in there, you're going to see a lot. And how do we walk out this Torah? What does it mean? The Torah by itself is incomplete. You need the rest of the Tanakh and the New Testament to get the full story. Look what it says in here. Thus Yehu eradicated Baal out of Israel, it says. This is the time where Jezebel... And Ahab were ruling, right? This is after Elijah had literally scorned the 450 uh, prophets of Baal. Now Jezebel is going after the prophet, which is Elijah, right? And what happens in here is this is later on in history. We see now that Yehu is a man who stands up and wants to get rid of all the Baal worship, right? Woo-hoo! Powerful. But here's the problem, folks. Here's the food for us today, Because when we come into this walk, we like, yeah, I'm ready to conquer the world. I'm ready to destroy everything. But do we? Look, look what Jehu did. So it says that he eradicated Baal out of Israel. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, he says, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin from these, Jehu did not depart, it says. Even the golden calves, they were at Bethel and that were at Dan. What is it really saying in here? Because it's saying that he got rid of Baal worship, but yet then it says that he kept the golden calves in the north. I'm going to submit to you that what Jehu did is that he got rid of the unmasked Baal. What do you mean by the unmasked Baal? There's a such thing as a unmasked Baal and a masked Baal. Let me give you an example: Halloween and Christmas. One is masked, the other one is unmasked. One is very, very vividly wrong, the other one comes as an angel of light. You're getting this. He got rid of the actual Baal worship, but he allowed the mixed worship to continue. This is the problem, folks. The ones that was mixed with you know, the service of God, because that's what they did. They mixed Baal worship with Hashem's worship. Those he didn't get rid of. And the Lord was not pleased with him. Again, testifying to the parashah Matot. And the war with the Midianites. Here's the connection. Are we getting rid of all of it? Or are we holding on to bits and pieces? See, folks, if we hold on to bits and pieces, the problem is that it's not a full deliverance. And if it's not a full deliverance, how can you be free? You can only be free when you fully deliver, folks. And the only way you're going to be fully delivered is if you consume, and I mean all of it. Oh, but this is the one that I used to love. All of it needs to die. Your zeal for God needs to be above everything, folks. If the zeal God is not there, you're going to continue to hold on to the bales. You're going to continue to hold on to the counsel of Balaam, mixed worship. And what does mixed worship bring? Confusion. What's happening in the body of Messiah today? Confusion. Well, somebody's doing it this way, somebody's doing it that way. we got now even Christmas trees in synagogues. Why not? Why not? Sure. Let's go ahead and slaughter him and at the same time, we just go ahead and do Passover with that. Because we continue to open the door and we're not getting rid of the bales. We have to get rid of all of it if we want a pure worship. How many of you want a pure worship? Okay. Pure worship means you got to get rid of the old folks, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. Amen. So now, continuing on in here, after the battle, Gad and Reuben went to Moses and said, Hey, we have a lot of cattle. This land we're look, looks really good for us. Why don't we you know, kind of like stay here? This is kind of like what's happening now. So now, now here's the trouble with the journey. Notice the, the different difficulties with the journey. The journey is full of difficulties. Now in the journey, we have some who want to settle. And what, what happens in here, folks? Look, Moses accused them of doing the same thing their fathers did. Disheartening the people by the way that word for disheartening the people look what it means to frustrate the people to contend with them to restrain their heart folks there's so much of that happening today because you see many of us are wanting to settle god says the promise is in israel the 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 heritage the torah our new family everything is over there and what are we saying we're staying here. You know what, God? We want to stay here because, you know, this grass looks really, really green. And what's happening is we're not pursuing anymore. Look what happens in here. The people are not willing to fight for the promise. In other words, the people uh, were restraining or disheartening with the people. They committed to the fight but asked if they could return to this land. So now we see that. here's uh, Let's throw a little curveball. Well, they decided that they're going to fight for the people to conquer the land, right? Was that still deemed as good? Well, for Moses, it was. Look, let's continue on in here. Be careful for what you ask for. You might just get it. Be careful what you're asking for. You just might get it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. You know, an answer prayer is not always a good thing, by the way. I will submit to you. Be careful. Use wisdom, guys god answered lots of prayers and it was a means of delivering their people to their own delusion we have to cross check our hearts to make sure that our prayers are actually in line up with his will and not our will because if you continue crying out to him for your will he's going to hand you over right to your will yes god answer me yeah you're doomed dude look be careful what you ask for. Even if you might be even uh, ask for, you just might get it. Even if it's not what Hashem wants for you. They settle for something less than the promise. What was the promise? They all Israel will go into the promised land, right? This is where he said. You go into a land where it's already harvested for you. You don't have toil toilet. You know, the Sabbath rest. Guys, it's a, a hint of the Sabbath rest. Because they didn't have to do anything but maintain it. That's it. Everything. Houses were built for them. Everything was done. That was a prophetic picture of when Yeshua comes back in the millennium kingdom. But they didn't want that. They want the promise now. How many of us do that, folks? See, we want our little Garden of Eden now. And we stop in the journey. How is it that we stop in the journey? How many of you know that you're supposed to be a Gur in this world? Do you know what a Gur is? A Gur is a traveler. In actuality, a gur in ancient time was a man on a camel. If you know anything about the ancient Middle East traditions, these are the Bedouins who travel in camels, and they may settle a day or two here, a month here, two here, but they're always traveling. They don't don't settle roots is what I'm saying. So what's happening in here is that these people, now they want to stop. Remember, they're heading to the journey, but now God and Reuben want to stop. You know, let's settle here, guys. You know what? This is perfect for this is perfect for our animals. Can I ask you a question? Don't you think that God knew that they had a lot of animals? You know what I mean? Seriously? Look. They were looking with their natural eyes instead of what they were promised. We are very guilty of that today. We look with the natural eye, not what God has promised. See, God has promised some amazing things that are written in his word right does it look like it when you look out there not really it's actually looking pretty darn ugly out there we don't see hints of god's kingdom we can't even feel it for the most part okay we're looking with our natural eyes that's why we need to be careful so they settle for something less than the promise And many of us in this movement are doing that. We are settling for less. How do we settle for less than the promise? When we forsake God's kingdom in order to make money, for one. You know, that job that pays very well, but you have to forsake Sabbath in order to keep your $350,000 home and your nice, beautiful car. You are forsaking the promise for something here today. You see how that works? We have to be firm. We have to keep our eyes fixed in the eternal promises that He has for us, family. You know that your life in here is only about vapor. We have to remember that. 2 Corinthians 5 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Our faith, our walk needs to be what does it say? For we walk. This is the journey. We walk by faith. We don't see it. I don't see the promised land. I don't see the new Jerusalem. Were you there when Yeshua got crucified? None of you were there. Is it real? How do we know it's real? We walk by faith, not by eyesight, folks. Amen? I wanted to share this piece of information just to show you something. Because Moses approved of it. He said, okay, well, if you do this, then you'll be good. You can come back. But how did God see it? See, that was Moses. Look, look what happens in here. The cities of God conquer are not named in, again, in the Torah, by the way. Look, most of the cities Reuben conquer are not named when they are mentioned as places of idol worship or places that were taken back by the enemies, by the way. There it is. So much for the promise, right? But they settled for that. And look, they got conquered later on in history food for thought so we're going to conclude now with my say that aspect of of my thought which is the journeys we understanding that god is telling us to renew ourselves with him to abstain from the idolatry and everything the message is very consistent in the themes of journeys as well look Numbers thirty-three, fifty-one says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figure stones and destroy all the molten images and demolish all the high places. When do we do this? When you cross over into the land, he says. That hasn't happened yet. We're talking about when all Israel comes into the land, not just parts of Israel. So can we go ahead today and destroy the figure stones out there? Especially, you know, when coming the season here soon, you're going to start seeing idols everywhere in town. Do we have the right to go there and slam it? No. He says when you conquer the land and you cross over, you are to do these things. Again, folks, read before we act. Again, zeal with no wisdom can be dangerous. He is saying specifically when you are to do this. But it's interesting that he's saying to do it, though. The concept of destroying the figurines, the, the idols, and all these things is something that is very consistent in God's word. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. Okay, this is something that has not been fulfilled because all the tribes need to be there for their allotment. You're understanding this. When is this going to happen? Well, I submit to you it's going to happen when the king returns. Because he's the one who's going to make sure that every tribe gets their allotment. Amen? So it says in here, you shall inherit the land by lot according to your families. The larger you shall give more inheritance and to the smaller you shall give less inheritance. Wherever the lot, uh, lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. You shall inherit according to the tribe of your fathers. But if you do not, now listen to what he says. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain, they will become like pricks in your eyes and like thorns in your sides. I will submit to you right there, folks, that you are reading a fulfilled prophecy. Israel, unfortunately, never Got rid of of the inhabitants of the land, and now who are they surrounded by? The very enemies that God says, Get rid of them. It's a consistent message. You continue petting the viper, it's going to strike at you, folks. You know that in Judaism there's a such thing, guys, as bad chesed. You know what bad chesed is? Bad grace. See, we're coming from a system of religion that taught us, and we're coming into the Torah, but we're keeping that mind. We're still keeping that train of thought. No, there's a such thing as bad grace. If you go to the, uh, to the, um, to the pub and you continue to give that drunkard more liquor because, oh, I feel sorry for him, you're doing a great disservice to him. It's bad grace. Same thing with your enemies. He's saying get rid of them stop keeping them in your life if you got that weight in your life folks get rid of it what's the purpose what are they doing for you get rid of them simply put if they're causing you to stumble get rid of them look if you don't it says they will become as pricks in your eyes and a stone in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land which you live he says Right? Isn't that happening today? And then the worst thing is this. Look what he says. And as I plan to do to them, I will do to who? To you. Who's speaking? The God that we call merciful, by the way. I'm not mocking. I'm just saying he is merciful. Because, you see, his mercy is telling you, get rid of it. You don't want to get rid of it. Okay, you don't want to get rid of it? Then I'll just keep him there. No problem. But when they attack you, don't turn around and cry out to me. See, this is the, this is the cyclical thing through men's history. God says, remove him. we like, but why? We have, to, we have to share grace. You know, how are we going to minister to them? You know, that's that whole Christian thinking, guys. A lot of that. A lot of that. A lot of that. We need to understand God through his word. So let's look at this. Become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your size. We highlighted in here the word. It says, Be enechem. That is the word for eyes. Be And then it says, Velitzninim. Velitzninim. That is the word, Velitzninim. It means a thorn or a prick, literally. A thorn or a prick. But why did I wanted to present that word? Because one of the greatest commentators has some food to share with us as to what's that mean. By saying that they're pricks. Or they're going to be a prick on your side. On your eye, rather. One of the greatest commentators is Rashi. Rashi says this. The lexicographers explain it in the sense of a hedge of thorns, essentially. So, it says in here... Um, Sininim is another form of sinim so that the meaning here is they will become as something which hedges you in. Listen to this. This is really awesome. Because when we read it in the Bible, it just means, okay, a prick in my eye. Ow, 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 ow. But there's more than that. That's uh, Again, this is an idiom. Now we need to uncover the idiom. And I promise you, you're not going to get the idiom in, in a Christian commentary. Here's the idiom. He says, it will become as something which hedges you in, enclosing and imprisoning you in order that none can go forth and come in. Hear me out. He's saying because you're keeping the enemies, the enemies aren't going to enclose you in essentially where there's no escape now. But it gets better. Let me share a little bit more on this so we can, we can see. And Tur Ha'arok says this. As pins in your eyes and as thorns in your sides. Look what he says. They will be as thorns in your eyes that prick you and make you blind. As a result of which you will constantly be misled. Hello. You become blind now. In other words, they are literally carrying you in with these thorns to the point that now you become blind to see the truth. Look what he continues to want to say in here. It says that your eyes that prick you and you will become blind as a result of which you will constantly be misled. So, look what he says, that you will not be able to learn from your past mistakes. Look, and we'll learn. Now, here's the big one. And we'll learn to copy the evil ways of these pagans, he says. The thorn... It's essentially you're going to now assimilate with them and you're going to be so assimilated in, with them that you're not going to be able to find a way out. <laughs> wow, that takes it to me to a whole different level, bro. Look, as a result of which they will harass you in your own country because of your being disloyal to me. I will expel you from the Holy Land. Ultimately, the land will become Juderim, which means devoid from any Jews. Is that become true? Absolutely. This is the thing that we need to understand, folks, is that the thorns means that you're going to learn from them. You're going to assimilate with them, and you're not going to be able to see the truth. Has that happened? Look at history. Look at our history. See, this is what I love about the Word of God because through the Word of God, He's teaching us so much. Even though we completely mess up, the Father in His mercy and His grace is the author of history to teach us what we need to do. What is it that we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to grow chuspa. We need to grow zeal for God. We need to understand what something is damaging in our lives. We need to get rid of it. If you got kangreen, cut it off. Don't leave it there. Something that is bad, you need to cut it off, essentially. Otherwise, it's going to affect you in Yoda. So we're going to end with this right here. Joshua 23, 11 through 13. Connecting with this right here. How? What is it that Joshua... Because, you know, let's go back real quick. Even though the sages in here pointed this out, and I think it's great food because we see the evidence of it today. But in here, it's saying that they will become as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. What is the meaning... Essentially of all, besides what Rashi said and Arhutura says, now we're going to see what the written word says. Because there's actually a witness to the word. Let's see this. In Joshua chapter 23, look what it says. So take diligent heed. Now, remember, this is Joshua. He's about to die. And they're going to enter the land. And this is the counsel of Joshua to the children of Israel. And look what he says to them. So take diligent heed to yourself to love the Lord your God. I think it starts with that. I believe that if you learn to love God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your resources, with everything. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4. Folks, a lot of this actually becomes easy to do. It's only hard when the love of God is not there. But when there's an intimate relationship, you're not going to have a problem getting rid of those enemies. I promise you. So look what he says, for if you ever go back, listen to the counsel here of Joshua, for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will become a what? A snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Isn't that what we just read in the Torah that he's saying to them? If you don't get rid of them, they're going to be thrown in your eyes. But what is the fulfillment of that? What did he say in here? If you continue to associate with them and you if you intermarry with them, if you become one with them, guess what? This is what's going to happen. There's your answer, folks. The written word is giving us the answer of what this parasha is talking about, the pricks in your eyes. It says in here and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So there is the answer, folks. If we continue to cling to these nations, if we continue to intermarry, if we continue to do things that are not right in the eyes of the Lord, He has promised you that you're going to have turmoil in your life. However, He has also promised you victory if There's always an if, if you follow his word wholeheartedly. Amen. And that is our Torah portion for today. And as we always do when we end the book, what do we end the book with? Hazak, Hazak, Veni, Hazek, right? So all together, Hazak, Hazak, Veni, Hazek, be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. Next week, we start the book of Deuteronomy, folks. Lots of excitement in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm very excited to actually teach it. It's going to be really, really awesome. And, uh, well,
1: be prepared for that. Baruch Hashem. So this is the Ahav Torah for Matot. And, of course, it's the book of Jeremiah. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Jeremiah. Was he a a prophet or a priest? Of course, the answer is both. We know him as the prophet Jeremiah. He's listed among the other prophets right but it's interesting in verse one it tells us that he was a priest and not only that was he, he was of the priests in Anatot, right so there's a the city of Anatot. does anyone know where Anatot was located about three miles north and east of jerusalem so in our torah portion we learned about the 48 cities that were the le- given to the levites right there's actually four from each tribe to make the 48 six of those became uh cities of refuge and so the others were just Levitical cities, and they were spread throughout Israel. Some were given to different portions of Levites. There were the Kohathites, some cities were given to them. The Merariites, some cities were given to them. And then the other four kind of Levites were the Gershites, Gershonites. And some cities were given to them. But there's a fourth category of Levites. We call them the Aaronites, if you will, the high priests, right? And some cities were given to them. Anatot was given to the Aaronites. So the 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 congregation, the families of the high priests. So there's Jeremiah coming from Anatote. And so he would be not only a priest, but he would be of the high priest. Right? Interesting. Now, Anatote's also mentioned, interestingly, in the story of Solomon. So when Adonijah was rising up and trying to become king himself, there was a priest, uh, Abiathar, help me out here, Abiathar, and, he, and this priest was um, supported Adonijah, and so Solomon, instead of killing him, sent him banished him to Anatote, which is only three miles away. So there's, the, there's some history, and there's some um, context that says that Jeremiah was likely of the fa- this family in Anatote. So he would have been banned from temple service, and it gives a whole other wrinkle to Jeremiah and his prophetic calling, and he's going to go to the king and go to the priest's, and he's going to be telling them what the word of the Lord says when he was of a family that has been banned and, and kicked out, right? So there's like, this when you talk about Jeremiah saying, who am I, am not worthy, maybe there's a little more context to this idea, perhaps, right? So that's Anatote. And so Jeremiah was definitely a priest and, and a prophet both. Um, so let's talk about Jeremiah's calling. We see in Jeremiah 1, uh, verse 5, we see uh, that... The Lord says, "I formed you in the womb before I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, and you have, I have appointed you to profit to the nation. So, this idea of "I knew you" is that Hebrew word yada. We've talked about that a couple times. Where yada is not just "I, I know somebody." Uh, oh yeah, I know that guy down the street. No, this is in marriage covenant. I know that other person, right? I know my significant other, in inside and out. I know everything about that person, right? And so that's the idea of yada. He knew Jeremiah before he was born. He was consecrated, he was appointed and, and set apart. But it's interesting, um, appointed here is not pachad, which is a Hebrew word we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, it, that mean, really means appointed. The word appointed here, as translated appointed, is really more of, of, of a gift. It's natan. It's, Jeremiah is given as a gift to the nations, as a prophet to the nations. So it's God's gift to the nations. Jeremiah was literally God's gift. Right? It's pretty amazing it goes on Jeremiah's response to this call he say all right thank you Lord I'm ready let's do this uh-uh alas which means uh-huh right that's Hebrew for uh uh-huh. what what God what do you mean behold I do not know how to speak and because I'm a youth does that sound familiar or kind of hints of Moses right ah, I can I don't know how to talk I don't know how to talk. And, and he's uh, saying I'm a youth. He may have been young, but he may have been almost 30 or even 40. We don't necessarily really know. But the point of the, being a youth is there's people in the temple who've been there a lot longer and have been studying a lot longer than I have. And you want me to go tell them? Right? Remember our back story of his, of his history, of his family. So that's his response. And it's God's response to Jeremiah. Don't say I am young. Because everywhere I send you, that's, that's, that's the shalak, that's the apostle sending, the, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. You're going to say my words. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will deliver you. So love what Hashem's doing with Jeremiah here. He just said, I'm, I can't talk, I'm too young. He's got excuses. And was the excuse that he re- couldn't really talk? Is that really true, or that he was really too young? God blows down, he's afraid. Of going to talk to them, right? These are his excuses, and God blows it down, gets right to the point. Don't, don't be afraid of them. I am with you, right? So then the calling continues, continues, and gets pretty amazing here. The Lord stretched out His hand and touched my mouth. We got hints here of Isaiah, right, with the with the burning coal touching the mouth. Behold, I have put my words into your mouth, so you can say nothing else but what I tell you. What a calling! And then it continues, verse 10. This is where we get to this idea of appointed you this day over the nations, over the kingdoms. This appointed, the English translation appointed, is the word pachad, which we first see as being um, God visiting Sarah when she was barren, right? We also see it in the, uh, Isaiah is talking about the watchman on the wall. He set watchman on the wall. The idea of setting is this appointing, pachad. It's it's, it's an appointing, it's a very purposeful calling. Uh, it's like an apostle being sent. It's it's on purpose with a design. You've been built for this design. I'm putting it here. It's not by accident, right? That's what the idea of appointment is. That's Pachad. He's appointed for a purpose. And what's that purpose? To pluck up and break down. We have destroying and overthrowing. And we have building and planting. Wait a second. Wh- which is it, right? Are we destroying or are we building? Are we plucking or are we planting? Right? Well, it, obviously, it's both, for sure. Maybe it's a creative destruction, right? So, there's, a, there's a, a concept here of there's things that need to be brought down, brought low, removed, and we talked about that this morning. That need to be brought out, removed, the idols need to be removed before the uh, Torah society can be planted, right? Before uh, God's ways can be planted. And the reason they have to be plucked up and brought down is because they already have chosen not to follow in God's ways. So jumping forward in Jeremiah, this theme carries forward. In Jeremiah 31, this is that section that talks about the new covenant being in the hearts of men. Behold, the days are coming, declares Jehovah, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of a beast. And here we have, I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster. And so I will watch over them to build and to plant. And this this, uh, prophecy has came true in Israel's um, being sent into exile, right? And then also brought back in 1948. We have Israel becoming a nation yet again. And it's also very prophetic of, of the end times where we'll be brought back, right? The building and the planting will be will be happening. And this idea of planting is amazing. It's not just uh, throwing the seeds out there. It literally means to fasten, to fix. Like you're planting, it, it's stationary, right? When you plant a tree and it starts growing, it ain't moving again, right? Because it's not. you can't just knock it over easy. It's planted, it's fixed in place. All right, let's go back. Back to Jeremiah 1. In verses 11 and 12, we're still talking about his calling. God says to Jeremiah, what do you see? So instead of just telling Jeremiah, he's asking him to participate. Tell me what you see. And he says, I see a rod of an almond tree. And you're getting hints here, right, of, of Aaron and his almond rod budding. And so there's this idea of, of, of authority and appointment that comes with the almond, the almond branch budding. And it goes on oh, so the word almond tree here, it's, this is so interesting. It's shekhed, right? Almond tree is the word shekhed. Now watch this. The verse continues You have seen well, Jeremiah. I always wonder what happened if Jeremiah didn't see well. But I guess we don't have to worry about that. He saw well. And um, he said, for I am watching over my word to perform it. That watching is shikad. So Hebrew is actually an action language, right? It's all about the verbs. And often the nouns come from the verbs. And so shikad comes from shikad. They're the same root. And so this idea of an almond rod branch has to do with watching, right? There's There's something there. There's a connection between these two. Let me tell you what that connection is. When we look at an almond blossom here, the almond tree is the first plant to bloom, and one of the last, if not the last, to actually produce the fruit. So we have the almond tree waiting and watching the very first moment, wait, is the freeze too early, too late, it's, it's watching, it's on the lookout it, to bring forth those blossoms, right? And then it's waiting and watching again for the proper moment to bring forth its fruit, its patient, its faithful, right? So we have this idea of the almond tree, Shekhead, being a watchful plant, and the idea of watching shikad with the association with the almond branch being uh, God's authority for, for Aaron and here for Jeremiah, right? And so... The idea of watching has to do with a faithfulness, right It has to do with knowing the times and the seasons. It has to do with understanding what God wants to do and waiting for that to happen with patience. Jumping back forward into the, the new prophecy here, uh, the new covenant prophecy in jeremiah thirty one back to that same verse, we have the word watched again he 's going to watch over them to pluck up and break it and he 's going to watch over them to build and to plant Now with that knowledge of what watching really is right he's watch he 's faithful. To pluck up and to break them down, why is that? Because they were they were serving their idols. They were not serving him completely. They were mixing their worship, and so that all has to be broken away. Right, all has to be torn out, and he's going to be faithful to build and to plant yet again. We we see this in, in our earth earth and uh, our gardens. You got to pull out the weeds. You got to pluck them up. You got to root them out so you can plant the good plants, the the garden plants that you want to plant. We see this in in literal. Israel was sent into dispersion, right? And they're going to be brought back. And we see this spiritually. As Richard was talking about this morning, we are you know, supposed to get rid of the idols that are in our, in our lives, are the prideful in our heart. We have to pluck that out. We have to break that down. And if we're not going to do it willingly, God will do it. And, and he's also faithful to watch, to rebuild, to build us back up. And to plant us yet again, right? So it's it's for now, and it's also for the prophecy uh, for the future. So in conclusion, we see that Yahweh is—he is faithful, right? He is—he's faithful to his promises. I'm sorry. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his word, faithful to his instructions that come with blessings and cursing. He's faithful to your destruction should you choose. Not follow his ways he's faithful to his your blessings if you choose to follow his ways another way to say that he is he is just he is righteous right he is a god of grace but he's also a god of of righteousness right he's god of justice and we can sum all that up by saying he is watchful like the almond tree he is watchful he is faithful with his instructions that he's given to us he's faithful to see his prophecies come to completion and he's faithful till the end, until the alamobad. We are also called to be faithful. We are called to be righteous and be seeking his righteousness, seeking to follow his instructions, all of his instructions, not just the ones we like and, and ignore the ones we don't like. We are, faith- we are called to be righteous to follow His instructions, and we are called to be watchful, watchful of the seasons of what's going on in our world today, watchful of, of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled and when, when they be fulfilled and what, what's needed for that to happen, mindful of the times and seasons that are around us and upon us. So I, my prayer for you today is that we are indeed faithful and just and watchful. Hallelujah.
2: You know, one of the things I've noticed through the last probably three teachings that I've, I've brought to you all is this theme that God has been saying that we need to stop doing the things that are against Him and that we need to actually choose His ways and not the ways of the world. Richard brought this up this morning about hanging on to some of the things of the world. Well, James here, Yaakov, however you want to look at it, but he... He brings us out pretty pretty plainly. That's what I like about him, is that he's very, uh, very blunt. And there's not much misunderstanding what he's saying. And there's some things about James that I didn't know. And one of the things I keep telling you all is that if you really want to learn Scripture, look at it, read it, and study it as if you were going to teach it to somebody else. Because you'll see things that you don't normally see when you're just reading it, unless you have that mindset that you're trying to find those nuggets, find those hidden jewels that are in the Word, and they're everywhere. You'll find that your whole outlook on when you read Scripture will change. I, uh, you know, I've told you all I've been in, was in the uh, the Baptist Church for over 45 years and it's funny because in my Bible I made lots of notes and I sat in churches uh, like Chuck Swindoll and listened after Charles Stanley and some of these big guys and you know what the things I wrote down in my Bible that they said I can't find it's not in there What what they said that that scripture meant not even close So the danger of hanging on to the world and the world's views even about what the Word says is very dangerous. And this is what God has been kind of showing me through these teachings is that with all the things that are going on in our world right now, hanging on to the world's ways and their philosophies and their opinions may not be the the best thing for us to do. So I'm, I'm feeling kind of this urgency that we learn what we're being taught, that these things here are are for life and death, because you're going to choose one or the other. Now with with, uh, Yaakov here, he's kind of a really interesting person. I don't know if you all have really looked into who he is uh, or was, and all the things about him, but He's a lot different than a guy than I ever read about. So, James, the half-brother of Yeshua, can you say peer pressure? I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like try to go play hide-and-seek with this guy and, and the Ruach tells, tells him right where you're at? I mean, kind of a downer, right? And you go to do something nice for somebody and your big brother comes along and turns all the water jugs into wine? It's kind of hard to beat, you know? But he lived with him and, and learned from him. And I think he's one of, one of the greatest of the apostles, I really do, just because of the way he is. And probably that comes from having to be the little brother. I know that feeling, I was one of those. Okay, James was a chief rabbi in the Messianic church there in Jerusalem. Big leader. Okay, this is not a position you just get because you were Yeshua's you know, half-brother. This guy is that good. And he was the head of the church. They went to him for understanding. You remember the, uh, where Paul had to go to Jerusalem? When they were having disputes and stuff, they went and asked. They asked James, What do you think? He was the chief Halakhic uh, judge and authority of the Torah. He was a respected sadiq. Which means he was, you know, he's a righteous man. So there's a, there's a lot more to James than what I think than what we've we've actually seen from our teachings in the world. All of James' teachings are based on messianic Jewish views of the Torah, just like Paul did. Some say that Paul was the greatest and did all these good things, but did you know that Paul and and James taught along the very same lines? You know, and that's a cool thing because I love Paul. I mean, but Paul's pretty deep on some things. Even the Bible says that he's hard to understand. Peter was was talking about, you know, that Paul's stuff is a little bit hard. James isn't. You don't have any doubt when you get through listening to him. And that's as valuable as a guy like Paul. So I hold them both up there as being about the same. The book of Yaakov was written around A.D. 46 to 60, and James died in A.D. 62 after being stoned and clubbed to death. You know, we think about the life of some of these apostles, and you look at it in the Bible, you read these things about them, and you don't think that's not that big a deal. I mean, yeah, okay, they all died martyrs death. Do you realize that Bartholomew was skinned alive? Some of these apostles not only went through a lot of persecution that we haven't even felt at all yet, but they went through that, and then they had to die these horrific deaths. See, the guys, when they were stoning James, they didn't know for sure if he was dead or not, so one guy goes up there and whacks him with a club. Okay, that's somebody that really wants you dead. Alright, so let's look at James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, where do fightings and strivings come from among you? Do we have that going on today? Do we have fightings and strivings going on inside the body? Who's he speaking to here? The body of believers. He's talking to brothers. He even calls them brothers. Okay, so he's not talking to the people out there in the world. He's talking to you people right here. And this is the things that was going on. What does that mean? Fightings, battles, warfare, resistance. Does that sound like something minor like you have a disagreement with somebody? no these were serious things that were going on there and he's saying why are you doing this? You're, we're supposed to be a body we're supposed to be a had right Pleasures do they not come from your pleasures that battle in your members Lusts old man now when you're gonna hear me talk about lust here several times I'm not speaking about sexual lusts. these are the lust of the eye. The desires of man to do it his way. There's a big difference, okay? Yeah, you can you can hit the, the sexual lust. That's real easy. But I would say there's some of you in here that have problems with lust of, outside of the sexual things. And it's just as hard to fight against as it is the sexual ones. So it's the old man that's basically battling in your members. You've heard Paul say that. We fight not against flesh and blood, right? Wars against our spirit, okay? And two, he says, you desire and do not have. What do you mean desire? He says, you have lust. You have lust and you do not have. So you're desiring things that aren't yours, that aren't good for you even, but you still want them anyway. And he says, you murder and are jealous and are unable to attain. You murder? Did they kill somebody? It says killing with the tongue. How many times have we seen in our congregations people that can murder somebody with their tongue? I mean, man, if you've ever been torn apart by somebody just by their words, you'll understand what that means. And then there's those that are killed; they're just their reputations are destroyed. Their their whole character can be destroyed. Just because of somebody's words. And that's what he's speaking about about here. Unable to attain. You're never satisfied spiritually or physically. You're just never satisfied. This is the kind of people he's talking about here. You strive and fight and you do not possess because you do not ask. Possession. No shalom. No contentment. You ever known anybody like that? No matter what you did for them, they were never satisfied. Never content. Okay, these are type of people. These are believers. These are people in your churches. So this is what's going on. Does this sound like today? Absolutely. As as Richard has talked about over and over again, this is a cyclical thing. We are going through the very same through same things that James did. He's only he's put it on paper. It says because you do not ask. How many times you've been going through something, and you go over it and over it and over it. But you never even think about praying about it. Never seek God's will for it. Is there a reason why we don't ask God to show us what it is we should do sometimes? Maybe we don't want the answer. Maybe it would be something that we know that He wouldn't approve of. I'm going to touch on that a little bit here in just a minute. It says, you ask and you do not receive. Because you ask evilly in order to spend it on your pleasures. Evilly. It means asking, your asking is diseased, it's sick, it's miserable. And that's the way we ask when we're asking for things for us, the things we want, instead of asking for things that God wants. Okay? Pleasures, lust, selfish gain. You see that term lust just keeps popping up there. That's one of the biggest problems that we have in the body is wanting something that doesn't belong to us or wanting something that's not his will for us. There's some some that have a lot. There's some that are spiritually giants above us. Have we tried to seek out the right ways of doing that? Do our prayers align with his will first? Richard touched on this in the, in the parshav to begin with. We're talking about his will. Do we want his will in our life? Do we ask for His will in our life? Because I'll submit to you that a lot of times we don't ask because we don't really want to hear that answer either. Because he might be saying, change that job. He might be saying, you don't need that person in your life anymore. He might be saying, change that church. You need to be someplace else. And if you don't want to hear that, you're not going to pray for His will. And people today, I think this is one of the biggest problems I see in the Messianic movement, is we want, and we say we want God's will, but we really don't because it really might mean sacrifice. It might mean putting away the things of this world that you're still hanging on to for security and actually letting go and letting God do it, do it His way instead of your own. John, uh, 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in His presence. If we ask anything that accords with His will, He hears us. You see the difference when we're asking for things for our will? We're asking for things that we want compared to asking what He wants? You know, some I've heard people say, Well, I pray all the time and my prayer is just bouncing off the ceiling. Well, maybe you're praying about the wrong things. Maybe you're praying for your will instead of God's will. Is He going to deliver? No. He's not in that business. His ways are His ways. And He says, He will hear you if you're praying for His will. You unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? See, it's these women. It's always the women. Unfaithful. Is that what He's talking about here? Unfaithful wives, adulterous, evil-minded, the bride of Yeshua. That's all of us. We are the bride. And that's who he's talking about, your unfaithfulness. He says, do you know know that the loving the world is hating God? What is hating God? It's an active hostility toward God. Now, how can you be a believer and a follower if you have active hostility toward God? It means your priorities are way off. Is he not, are you not being blessed? Are you not receiving answers to your prayers? Maybe it's because you're an unfaithful wife and you actually are hating God. Because hating God is not a, it's not a little thing. Hating God means you're not, you're not doing Torah when you know you should. It means you're choosing your way instead of His way. That's hating God. That's being at enmity with God. Can you be? That don't work very good, people. Outside the camp. Whoever chooses to be friends makes himself God's enemy. It means you're outside the camp. Cuz he's not going to bless you. He's not going to have you in positions of being blessed when you're his enemy. I mean, nobody would do that, right? You got a guy down the street that hates your guts and does everything he can to make your life miserable. Okay, are you going to go and, you know, move in with him? Probably not. James 5 and 6 says, Or do you suppose the Scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a Spirit in us which longs to envy? Right. Let's look at that. The Spirit. What is that Spirit that's in us that longs to envy? That's the old man in you. That's the. You mean, there's, there's three voices going off in your head all the time. There's Satan, Hasatan speaking to you. Then you got yourself speaking to you telling you what you think is right what you think you want to do and then you got that still small voice that's the voice of God that's trying to get your attention but the other two are are going crazy that's the old man longs to envy means intensely craves to possess now a lot of us don't think that we intensely crave anything but when your actions Or that of getting what you want when you want it, how you want it. That's that's an intensity of doing what you want to do, and it's craving to to possess that. Opposes God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble He gives grace. That opposes He shall drive away, He shall destroy. That's God's attitude. To those that don't want to do it his way, he says he will he will drive them away and he shall destroy them. That's being outside the camp again. That's not following Torah, and that's what God that's what God thinks of. But arrogant, grievous, hard, stiff neck. We've heard that before. The Jews are our stiff necked people. He's saying God opposes those things. Those are things that are that are detestable to him. So this is what God sees when we think we're going to live our life our way, hang on to the world and not do it His way. The sages say the Tanakh speaks directly of that spirit, the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination in Genesis 6-5. The grace God gives to overcome through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh is greater than that evil inclination that we carry around with us. Okay? Seven and eight. So then, subject yourselves to Elohim. Uh Uh-oh. So then, subject yourselves to Elohim. Subjecting means reflexively obey. When you subject yourself to Elohim, that's your first first inclination that's the first thing you want to do is you want to obey when you subject yourself do we subject ourselves to God is our first desire is the first thing that comes to our mind when we're faced with a decision is it to do what he says or is it to do what we like to do or what we want to do what we've determined is the best thing let me go back Moreover, take a stand against the adversary and he will flee from you. So what's that mean to take a stand? It says be as an oak tree. I thought that was pretty interesting. That's what it means when you take a stand for something. You're an immovable oak. You cannot be moved by the adversary because you're standing on the power of the Word. You're standing in God's will. His strength is behind you and you will not be moved and when it says he will flee it says your adversary will vanish in the, in the Aramaic that's what it's talking about when it says and the devil will flee from you it says he will vanish he can't stand in the same place that Yeshua is standing so if you're hanging on to the world you're, you're basically inviting Satan to come alongside you and then you're saying but I want to hang on to Yeshua too can't do it one or the other James four eight says, "Draw near to Elohim, and He shall draw near to you." Is that old saying that He He'll walk closer than a friend with you? Draw near, live His Torah, and walk in it, and He will walk with you closer than a friend. Now we're going to go up to four eleven. I'm going to conclude with this: that the brothers, it says, brothers, stop speaking against each other. A lot of that goes on. What is that, he, that? Speaking against? It says, speaking evil. Destructive words. Let your words be words of encouragement. Words of grace and mercy. Not destructive words. Because remember, these are your body. These This is the, the people that you belong to. It's like tearing down your own. If you have a close relationship with a, with a son or a daughter... You don't want to destroy that by talking hateful and hard and mean to that person. You want to be uplifting and kind to them. So he's telling them, stop speaking this way toward each other. Whoever speaks against a brother or judges a brother is speaking against Torah. It's just that plain. You're speaking against Torah itself. And if you judge Torah, you are not a doer of what the Torah says, but a judge. That puts you in a different position judging a brother means putting oneself in the position of God because who's who's the ultimate judge? He is. So how can we with any kind of confidence at all think that we can judge our own brother? How they how they do things, what they think, what they believe? You can't. Okay? Cuz that's only one man has that authority to do that. Matthew five, uh, 7 says, "Don't judge so that you won't be judged." For the way you judge others is how you will be judged. The measure you measure out will be used to measure you. I read this verse about 20 years ago. And being a cop, you know, we, we judge people all the time. I mean, we five minutes with you and we can tell everything about you that's, that we need to know. And I found myself judging others and thinking harshly of others because of what I thought they were doing. Then I read this this verse here and I thought, you know what, if I'm that sloppy that I can just judge somebody because I've seen them one time for a few minutes, is that the way I want my Creator to stand, when I stand before Him and He goes, yeah, you know, you're kind of a sorry dude. You've done a lot of things I don't like. Or do I want a Creator that's going to judge me based on His compassion, His mercy? So... I stop judging others like that because I don't want to be judged how I judge people because the way I've judged them has not always been right even. I've been wrong. Don't tell my wife that. So in conclusion, there is but one giver of the Torah. He is also the judge with the power to deliver and to destroy. Who do you think you are judging your fellow human beings? You know, Yeshua is the one. He's the only one that can do that he's the only one that should be doing that he, he died on the cross the most horrible way you could possibly die and took on our sins so that when it comes to judgment time that's his job not ours we don't want to put ourselves in that position James 2.8 says if you truly attain the goal of kingdom Torah in conformity with the, with the passage that says love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, your actions constitute sin. You are convicted under the Torah. That's from Leviticus. Folks, I pray that you will think about the things that we do each and every day. Think about the attitudes that we have. Are we doing these things to bring glory to Him or to ourselves? Are we hanging on to the things of this world? Or are we totally, as it said, being subject? To yeshua that our entire being is is thinking about the things that he would have us to do being in his will not our own shalom
0: hallelujah blessed be his name
3: Panav elecha Vichuneka The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the name of the Lord be upon you forever.
0: Thank you for being a part of our teaching.
1: Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially.
0: It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with
1: Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.